Hello, and welcome to the Blood and Wine Orientation video. <laughs> what are you doing? You know, honestly, I it's it's one of my dreams to be the voice in a really shitty like onboarding video at work. I think if you're in HR, you're probably going to accomplish that. I was like, that's the reason I'm here. That's <laughs> the only reason because. I'm going to be a star one day, mama. Hey, except your video's not going to be shitty because now you're used to, like, thousands of people hearing your voice every it's, freaking week. That is very true. Have you noticed how that, like, changes certain things you do in your life? Like, for me, at work, I'm no longer intimidated at presenting and meetings and whatnot. I mean, yes and no. I've always been fine presenting to big groups. Okay, well, as an introvert who decided to okay, do a podcast, uh, please. I am me. also very much an introvert, but if it's, for some reason, you at work- You are more I of an extrovert than an introvert than I am, but I know you're an introvert. Yes. Makes sense? Yeah. Yes. Like, I always say the example, if I was sitting at my desk and someone was like, oh, Tyler, we need you to present this to the directors, I'd be like, okay. But if we were at a restaurant and you were like, ooh, go say hi to that guy, I would be like, I will literally never do that in my entire life. (laughs) Okay, totally fair. Because I do not do that either. But at work, I will. Uh, Yeah. So, um, well, hey, everyone. This is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany. I'm Tyler. And um, yeah, so if uh, you are an introvert who would like to get some practice on being extroverted, start a a podcast. podcast. (laughs) Because um, honestly... You get over hearing the sound of your own voice after you edit, like, the first two or three episodes, because it takes, like, a thousand hours, one, especially when you don't know what you're doing. (laughs) It's true. Um, And if you hate the sound of your voice, you'll get over that after you listen to it over and over, because literally, you just won't recognize it anymore? No, it just sounds like another video. Like, oh, yeah, this is that person. Because when I'm editing, I always, I'm like, yeah, that's Britney's voice and someone. I'm never like, that's me. I know what you mean because I don't, also when I'm editing, I'm not like, I don't know. Also, I sound super gay in real life is what I've realized. (laughs) It's always like, how do people know when I just like say hello to them and then I hear my voice and I'm like, "Mm, that's how, that is how they do. Yeah. But. Wow. No, no, no. No, you just sound like you and that's what I'm used to. And like, because when I hear my voice, I feel like it's this super, I'm like this deep baritone man and hello i'm britney and this is my podcast (laughs) why did you give me an accent that was so rude (laughs) but no i feel like (laughs) (laughs) understand that (laughs) um anyway no i i don't necessarily like the sound of my own voice but i've gotten over it because i'm used to hearing it now i mean that's fair so, yeah, we are actually back in our original studio, a.k.a. my apartment. It's, yeah. Because last week, we tried to record. So, <laughs> Tyler just moved to a new apartment. I did. And I can't remember if we mentioned it on the video or on the in the recording that we were recording in the lounge. I think we did. Because <laughs> my apartment, one, didn't have internet at the time. Which So that would make recording difficult. Yeah. And two, I have nothing hung up, so it echoes like I live so in the world's echoing. largest cave. Well, so... I it, don't, by the way. He doesn't live in a cave, but the doors would slam. We were right next to the gym. People kept walking down the hall. Like, then, it was crazy. What, three quarters of the way through, this guy, one of the other guys who lives in my building... Yeah, another resident. ...came in 
just to like work because we're in the public like internet lounge. He just yeah. sat down, started working. We're like, uh, okay. And we so just he continued. actually got a preview of last week's episode. He did. And uh, we're positive he was listening because how could you not when two people are recording a podcast next to you? And when it just is this great of a podcast. This great of a podcast. Also, we were just like, and then murder. I know. For with real. all the details. Like and you're sitting like, there to work down and then you hear like, and then he brutally cut her eyes out and stuffed them in her mouth. Not that that was either <laughs> of our cases last week. No. It was more like, and then it turns out she was catfishing a catfish who also was a catfish and there were catfish. Yeah. And for dinner, they had fried catfish. I know. Ironic, isn't it? It really was. You know, I love that they were able to share that meal together in the jail cell. That's what I call a bottom feeder. Oh my God, Tyler. (laughs) (laughs) I'm still trying to get on Sex and the City, I'm just saying. Yeah, you would be best suited for season one, I think. It's most in line with the book. And where they're like interviewing, it's so different. Like season one of Sex and the City is so different from like the end, like five and six and then the movies. Because it goes to like all these different people and it's all like the the men and the women in Manhattan. And it's like, (laughs) almost like they're being interviewed because you see like their name and like their job like comes at the bottom of the screen. And um, it's so weird. But Um, it's more in line with the book, which I have read the first chapter and that is all I will admit. So how do you know it's more in line with the book? Because the episode one is like the beginning of the book. Okay. But anyway, I love that show. I know you want to be on it. I'm sorry. You're not going to be a Carrie. I'm a Samantha, right? <laughs> Is that Kim Cattrall? Yeah, that's Kim okay, Cattrall. Okay, see, yeah, I obviously am the Sex and City expert. I will be SJP. That's fine. I'm absolutely not because she's just, she's like phenomenal and amazing and that's not me. But Wow, um, <laughs> have more self-confidence. No, no, no. I'm just saying I'm not running around in my Manolos with like Mr. Big or anything like that. You know what um, annoys me? Because she in the show is not... Like, her job is not that, like, crazy money, but her apartment is, like, fucking ridiculous. I know, and they explain it by, like, rent control, and I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm sorry. She has, like, it is a studio, but the closet is the size of a freaking bedroom, and it's huge. See, And it's on the Upper East Side. Like, I'm sorry. That was one thing I liked about Friends, is it kind of explained everyone's apartments. absolute bullshit. I, I know. People's actual New York City apartments are... Well, like your old New York City apartment. I know. Where it's where I'm like, a- oh, the kitchen is also the hallway. Well, I was literally paying $1,000 a month for a room smaller than a jail cell. So that's the reality mm-hmm. of New York living in Manhattan. But hey, Fair. I loved it. I would never change it for the world. Um, I like. also still live in a studio. So hey, there you go. Fair. Um, anyway, uh, guys, if you haven't heard about it yet, if you haven't listened to our intros yet, <laughs> which I know you have, um, please check out our Patreon. What? That's the first time I'm hearing of this. <laughs> so we have a Patreon with multiple tiers where you get lots of different fun things. Uh, the number one fun thing is our murder minis. And those are shorter episodes, but they're Patreon content only. Mm-hmm. Um, also, a super fun perk for our top tier is getting to select a topic and... Um, that one's just always really fun. We love hearing what topics you guys want to hear, and we'll pick one. And also, like we've said before, if you really, really, really want to hear a case, we'll consider that as well. Yeah. Like, just, just let little us know. DM us, email us, reach out to us on social media, and yeah. 
Also, make sure that you are subscribed to us. It is the best way for you to uh, get notified whenever we have our new episodes come out. You can download them immediately. So if you can, on whatever platform you listen to us on, go ahead, hit that subscribe button. Yes. So, um, okay. You want to jump into our current news that's actually not current to anyone but ourselves? Let's do it. (laughs) Okay. You guys, we found a new channel. Again, this is Tyler's Life Without... uh, Internet. I know. I do have internet now. Yes, but, but previously for he the didn't. like two weeks that I had no internet because why do I have to set up an internet appointment two weeks in advance? Granted, it's also on me because I didn't do it until the day I moved in. It was like, oh, I'll set up my internet appointment now, and it was like, you'll get internet in 2024, and I was like, <laughs> okay. You're like, I guess it's not that important. I don't use well, the internet also, for they're like, everything. The uh, dude's going to come set it up. One, don't know why I need anyone to set it up. I plug it in, it like beeps, and I'm good to go. Second off, it's like, he'll be there between 9 a.m. and midnight. And I'm like, okay. Oh my god, are you serious? The window no, it was, the- oh. it was like 9 a.m. to noon. <laughs> okay, still, I was about to say, that and is then it was like, some bullshit. Installation usually takes four hours. And I'm like, to do what? What are you doing? Because <laughs> I had where they mail you a box and they're like, set it up yourself, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, thanks, I will. And it took like 20 minutes? Yeah, something like that. I don't know. So anyways, in the time I did not have internet, I had my TV and an antenna. Hey, and if y'all don't have an antenna, seriously, get one. I know, they're like 15, 20 bucks. And, and you get like, I mean, I have like 20 channels or something. Yeah. I don't know. Well, and I've had one. Like, okay, I will call myself out. I haven't had cable since like I've, 2010. I have literally never paid for cable. Like, I, since I moved out of, like, to college. No, I've never paid for cable either. I just had an apartment where it came with it. Because some do what? that. Yeah, seriously. Where? You've been missing out. There are certain apartment complexes. Like, this was a college one, but there are also regular apartment complexes that it's just part of your package. Well, shit. I mean, it's also one of the things that I'm like, okay, I probably wouldn't use it. I would use it if I had it, but I'm not going to get it I just guess. to use it. Because I won't. Does that make sense? Yeah. It makes sense. But, um, no. So, we previously, last episode, we're talking about how we're watching the Justice Channel. Yes. Now, we were watching Ion, which is, is I guess, awesome. just, like... It's like the, um... All the crime shows that aren't true. Yes, like exactly. That's CSI, say. Law & Order, NCIS, Blue Bloods, yeah. I don't know. Well, and like the regular CSI, I haven't watched it forever. No, I didn't. I haven't thought about it in years. And the commercial on Iron came on. It was like, all day Friday, CSI, Las Vegas. And I was like, oh my god, yes. Because we used to watch that religiously oh, in yeah. like, like 2005. As a family. Like that's what yeah. we watched as a family. It's what we did. It's but true. you know what? Super, super shout out to Law and Order. That's a show I feel like it's underappreciated. Oh my god, it's so good. I have never watched. So we were watching Law and Order. SVU. There was like a marathon on. Yes, we stayed up way too late. The next thing we know, we're like, oh my god, it's been like five hours, and we're still it's, watching Law and Order. It's true. <laughs> um, but Law and Order SVU. It's one that I've watched in my entire life, maybe three or four episodes before we did this binge thing, because it's something that's like, oh, it's on. Sure. Like, it's oh, okay. so but, good. God, we were watching and I was like, 
fuck, these cases are good. Like, There's a reason that show is on, like, season, what, almost 20 or something now? I think it's on 20 or 21 right now. Shows like Law and Order and The Simpsons are always going to be relevant mm-hmm. and always going to be loved. And that's why, like, please never end either of those. I don't even watch The Simpsons on the reg, but it's a show that, you know, I like to tune into it. They stay very politically relevant and it's funny. It's true. I was never one who got into The Simpsons. I really liked Futurama, which made by the same people. Yes. Still made by Matt Groening. And um, Family Guy when I was younger. Although... Oh, Family Guy's gotten bad, man. It's not good. It's really one of those that at this point I'm like, you can go now. Yeah. Although, again, when I look at older episodes, there are a couple that I'm like, that's solid TV. But they're also not good. Yeah. Because, like, I feel like when you have the, you know, teenage boy humor when you're like, (laughs) that's funny. Now I'm like, that's really fucked up. (laughs) It is. It is. Well, um, anyways, so Law and Order, fucking amazing. Watch it. If you've never watched it, watch it. Um, One of the commercials that they run on Ion at least once per episode is like a behind the scenes with the cast. And they're talking about how impactful it is and like it brings certain subjects to light that people would rather sweep under the rug. Yeah. And it creates a dialogue. And I was like, that's fucking true. Like, it's so true. God. They they bring up things that and it's one of the shows that if you're not into something like Bones that can be pretty graphic and showing stuff, Law and Order doesn't do that. It's yeah. more like emotional impact and difficult in that way. Yeah. Um but still highly recommend it. But hey, What's our topic for this week? Let's tell our listeners. I know what it is, obviously, but let's tell our listeners. Our topic this week is the ones that got away or people who get away with murder. Yes. And in this episode, we're going to teach you how to get away with murder. Starring Viola Davis as our guest star. (laughs) Hello. Thank you very much. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks, Viola. How fucking awesome would that be, though? I would literally, (laughs) like piss myself (laughs) she is literally like one of the most inspiring and incredible actors that i have ever seen also i love the show how to get with murder but viola davis is amazing at anything i swear she could be wonderful she could be in like i don't know a hillshire farms commercial eating a ham sandwich be like "Mm mm-hmm that's ham and i'd be like that's oh my the God. only ham that's, I'll ever eat ever again. She gets all the Emmys, all the Addies, whatever the. I, don't know. I feel like that's the the commercial awards. I don't know what awards go to commercials. <laughs> Do they go to commercials? If Addies? if they don't, they would after that they because do. she would deserve an award. It's true. Anyways, um, so a couple statistics and interesting things I found on getting away with murder. Uh, sources I used here are Vox and the FBI Uniform Crime Report. And ABC. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, sure, ABC. Years of watching. <laughs> and Shondaland. And... <laughs> no. Okay, I'll drop it. Sorry. Okay. So if you murder someone in America, there's nearly a 40% chance that you'll get away with it. Is that not fucking 40? horrifying? Are, no, wait. Are you serious? Yeah, 40, 40. fucking percent? So... It gets worse because of the crime. Stop. You're reports. already saying it gets worse. Yes. We haven't even jumped into the cases. <laughs> I know. And this is horrible. <laughs> I know. So if you assault someone severely, there's a 50% chance you'll get away. And for most other crimes, the chance of you getting away are higher. So so wait, how is anyone getting caught? Slash, is this why the police system or the justice system is so desperate to convict people? Because they're not getting them. Well, there's just... 
a lot of, I mean, there's not a lot of resources that are given to police officers. And a lot of times some of the resources that is given is like military style stuff that's like, Okay, that's not going to help. Yeah, that's not, not going to give more oh manpower to the forensics department to test these thousands of untested rape kits. That's not going to give more people no. looking at the DNA evidence and getting rid of the fucking backlog of, oh, yeah, we have the killer's blood here, but... You know, we have 3,000 pieces of evidence to test before that. Isn't there a thing that's happening where um, people are able to volunteer now to help with testing past rape kits and whatnot? Did I make that up? I, I, I think know that's there's, real. there's a big movement going on, especially in the Austin area. Yeah. Because recently in, uh, over the past year, um, there were hundreds of rape kits found in Austin that were just untested. Yeah. And I think a lot were, like, destroyed because yep. they just threw them out untested. And so I know there's a big movement. There's a lot of, like, GoFundMe accounts totally. set up to give more money and resource for these. And I'm like, are we seriously having to set up GoFundMe accounts to test rape kits? And yeah. why the fuck not? We're setting if, up if GoFundMe accounts for... You know, people who are in the hospital or for funerals. So sure, let's just not fund anything. Anyway, that's, um, yeah. But no, I just, it's one of those things like I wish, I wish I knew a way to fix the resourcing problem <laughs> because there are so many things that are not able to be done. And I, and again, this could be a total generalization that I'm about to make. And I, I apologize if it is, but it's almost like because of the lack of resources, when there's a lead that like, kind of makes sense they just follow it and and go with it because yeah. it's better than nothing but Absolutely. at the same time i'm like isn't it the same as nothing if it's the wrong person yeah so i i don't really understand that and again i'm not in law enforcement i'm not working in the justice system just as no. an outsider that's my perspective yeah but there's just there's so many the resources that we need to be sending to our law enforcement because Law enforcement across the nation needs more resources, but they don't need the fucking tanks and the fucking, like, military-style weapons that no, they're they getting literally to need fight this, quote-unquote, war on drugs that's a war on people of color. They need people, and they need training, and they need money to be able to hire more people and have better training and be able to go through all this stuff. Anyway, um, but the figures back to getting away with murder... <laughs> Um, yes. The clearance rate, which is the percentage of crimes that are resolved in an arrest or other means by police, for murder is 61.6%. Wow. And this was for, I believe, 2017. Okay. For the year. Murders in 2017, only 60% or so were solved. For aggravated assault, 53.3%. For rape, 34.5%. Oh. And for property crimes, it drops below 20%, which, I mean, that sucks. Getting robbed or your car stolen or whatever, or your house like broken, broken into. into. Like, that's horrible. awful. But I'm okay with that being the lowest of these four. We need <clears throat> energy to be yeah. spent on solving murders, not solving robberies, which yeah. it well, sucks. But and Jackie mentioned that way back when we um were talking to her about uh cold valley she yeah. was saying how you know yeah there are cold cases don't get the resources they're you know they're focusing on yeah current murders 
rapes, assaults, and then if they have time, they'll get to property property crimes. And then yeah. after that, they would theoretically get to the cold cases, but they're stretched too thin. They of don't course. have the resources needed. Of course. And these numbers only tell part of the story. In some communities, the murder clearance rates drop even lower. Jeez. So in an analysis of killings over the past decade in 52 of the U.S.'s largest cities, the Washington Post found that black victims, who accounted for the majority of some of these homicides, were the least likely of any racial group to have their killings result in an arrest. What the fuck? While police arrested someone in 63% of the killings of white victims, they did so in just 47% if the victim was black. No, Not fucking cool. Things like that that are systematic racism that people say they don't believe in and they're wrong. But, yeah. So... There's uh, your fun intro into the topic on getting away with murder. It happens a lot more often than you would think. It's true because what we find in the news and what we read about and talk about a lot of the times are when someone's caught and when someone's going to trial. And that's when we talk about it. You only hear about the others at the very beginning. Yeah. As far as like updates of news, there's not newspaper articles of like, we still haven't found them. No. Unless it's 20 years later and it's like, oh, it's the anniversary. Oh, let's. Yeah. Yeah. And we're just sharing the past thing that happened to people who don't know about it because they're a new generation. One one thing that is interesting is this also doesn't go into how many of these crimes are actually reported. So this was one thing that was really. I guess, grounding that we learned in like my criminology classes in college were for the most part, almost every murder is reported. Like that's something across the board. Yeah. Most murders are reported, but when it comes to assaults, rapes, things like that, it drops significantly. People are worried. They don't report that stuff. Well, yeah. And the actual number of, crimes reported is so much smaller than the one that actually happened and even still the ones that are reported so few of them are actually solved right and it just it it's like a cycle it's like well what's the point of going to the police this isn't going to be solved so i'm not going to report it and then all these are unreported and not going to get solved kind of thing it's fucking heartbreaking that is really really heartbreaking and i i hate that i hate that people don't trust the system so much mm-hmm. that they're not even going to bother reporting when something happens. I just, you know, my advice would be if something happens to you or someone you know or you come across something, report it. Yeah. Because, yes, it's going to take some time. And, yes, maybe it's not going to be resolved. But if you never report it, it will never be resolved. Yeah. So don't set yourself up for absolute failure in yeah. resolution. Yeah. Well, I want to hear about the wine. Yes. I, I need um, a drink now. Yes, um, I do too. Okay, so the wine I picked is one you'd probably never think I would pick. It is the 2017 Atravola. It's a Pinot Grigio from California. <gasps> Holy gasps. Brittany hates <laughs> Pinot Grigio. Brittany <laughs> feels the same way about Pinot Grigio as I do oaked Chardonnays. So. Yeah, it's true. I just, I'm not a fan of it. However, when I saw this one, I was like, you know what? There are so many people that love Pinot Grigio. Let me give this I one like a Pinot try. Grigio. And this one is supposed to be really, really good. 
So it's a fresh white wine from the Sonoma Estate of Academy Award winner Francis Ford Coppola oh. and talented winemaker Corey Beck. And the pre- cool, yeah, the previous version of this wine won a gold medal and ninety-two points in the San Francisco International Wine Competition. Oh, sure. so. Okay. That's 92 and a 100 point scale. And I think the highest I've ever seen is like 98 or something. Yeah. So when I saw that, I was like, okay, all right, I'm going to give this one a go. Um, So this version is a couple years later, but it bursts with vibrant apple and pear and it's very crisp and juicy. Oh. Um, A little bit about Pinot Grigio. It's grown all over the world, but its first home is northern Italy. The wines that come from the Pinot Grigio grape are light to medium bodied with crisp citrus and orchard fruit flavors. Um, And some of them have a hint of nuttiness to them. I've never had one of those, but maybe this one will. Whenever they say that, I always wonder. I'm like, like, am I supposed to taste like pecans or are you talking walnuts or quite possibly almonds? Because Well, see, that's something like an almond. (laughs) Like, oh, okay. I can see like an almond going well with a crisp well what if it's pistachio fruit? like just what throw it's just a fucking really... peanut <laughs> <laughs> just, just like throw... here you go bitch peanuts what are they i mean peanuts nuttiness nuttiness could also just be like dirt because i was thinking peanuts are grown like underground and um i mean okay but then also sometimes dirt is described as a flavor so not in pinot grigio but in some reds well this one's nutty so, so oh, it um, can be nutty. Pinot Grigios can be nutty. Pinot Grigios can be nutty. So the aroma of this um, Atravola is ripe pear and apple with subtle floral notes. Mm. And then the taste is vibrant orchard fruit flavors um, that very much dominate this uh, fruit-driven palate. It's juicy and refreshing with a long, clean finish. Hmm. So, I hate the word juicy, but other than that, that sounds great. Um, Well, let's give it a try. Okay. I also want to call out how interesting the bottle is, or I guess the label. I thought it was like a Spanish wine. Yeah. When I first picked it up, to be honest. Um, I'm not crazy about the font. Like, in my, you know, critical eye, I think the font... The font of the name almost makes it look cheaper. Yeah, but it's really pretty. It's like this group of people um, in an orchestra. No, they're just like piano and violins and violas. Like they're just doing playing. their shit. It's very like a twenties sketch or something. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, it's absolutely. I like the label. It's, it's gorgeous. I'm actually going to please pour <laughs> wine on my laptop. <laughs> I was watching. Okay, so now let's give this a try. It's very light in color. One thing that is really nice about white wines is you can drink them immediately out of the bottle. You don't have to let them breathe. That is true. That is true. And um, that was one thing my, um, oh, the vase that you pour wine in, decanter. That was one thing in my decanter on the instructions. It was like, you can do it for white wine if you want. There's literally no point. There's literally no point. You literally don't have to. Okay. All right. Cheers. Cheers. I definitely taste the apple, which is what I always taste when I drink Pinot Grigio. I will say this is better than a lot of the Pinot Grigios I've had. Yeah, it's a nice, it's a light, crisp wine. It's definitely heavier than a Sauvignon Blanc, but I think pretty much all Pinot Grigios are. I feel like... Really? Are they? I always thought they were lighter. No, whenever whenever I think of like... The scale of lightest to heaviest whites, 
Sauvignon Blanc's usually the lightest. Oh. With Pinot Grigio being somewhere in the middle and Chardonnay at the end. Well, um, I don't hate it. It's not my favorite. It's but again, that I'm being I like totally it. biased. So like listen to Tyler's opinion on the Pinot Grigio. This I will say is one of the better Pinot Grigios I've ever had. Yeah. It's I like it. It's very nice. It would be it's like a lot of the white wines that are fruitier and crisper. This one, it's something that would be amazing on, like, a summer day or a summer night. So, it's... Ooh, I feel like a summer summer evening kind of wine on the porch. Yeah. June bugs perfect. and shit going on. I don't know. So, it's very crisp and refreshing. And I will say, this, I think, would be wonderful used in, like, a white wine sangria with, like, some Prosecco Ooh, and yeah. bubbles and fruit in it. I give it I would love that. Four and a half June bugs you have to fish out of your glass out of five. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. Um, okay. Well, as you always say, we have our wine. You've talked about the topic. I did that backwards. Yep. <laughs> Tell me about your case. <laughs> okay. All right. So the case that I chose for this week is the murder of Declan Lyons. I'm interested to hear about this one because I almost picked it. Okay. But I didn't read anything about it. So okay, I'm okay. interested to hear this. So the sources I used, All That's Interesting, Listverse, The Rutland Herald, Huffington Post, The Times Argus, The Herald, and NBC News. So a lot of local Vermont newspapers in there. Yes. Which I actually also found the trial transcript. But it was very much trial transcript, and I was like, I don't have time for this. And by tri- transcript, I mean, like, the official, like, lawyery worded trial, I don't know. Brief. Oh, you did that? Well, I looked at it and was like, I'm not going to use that. <laughs> it, that is, no. That is too much. So, on April 12th of 2002, shortly after 2 p.m., 24-year-old Declan Lyons was shot outside of the pizza place he worked in, in Waitsfield, Vermont. Oh, you're just getting right into it. Yep, just jumping right in. Okay. He was found lying dead outside the restaurant that he worked at, with a golf ball-sized hole punched through his head. What? Yeah. What makes that big of a hole? Big-ass gun. Oh my god. So, Declan was engaged and expecting his first child. He had been outside mixing sauce in this, like, outdoor cauldron that the pizza place had. Yeah. Um, when witnesses inside the restaurant heard a loud popping noise, and when the waitresses went outside to investigate, they found the unresponsive lions on the ground with his gaping head wound. Oh my god. Wow. So it was, like, a busy night, there were people there, and someone did this out in the back? Yeah. So, for weeks after, the police were stumped. Lyons was a very well-liked guy, and he had no enemies. Yeah. And there didn't seem to be any reason for this murder. He was just out there mixing sauce, shot. Yeah. Nobody knew what happened. Oh, my God. So, they're pretty much at a brick wall. They've interviewed his coworkers, his friends, his family. They don't have anything to go on. So then, about a month after the shooting, Lyons' co-worker, Isaac Turnbaugh, was at a campfire party, taking mushrooms. Oh. The psychedelic mushrooms, obviously. Not just eating pizza mushrooms. <laughs> no, he was he was eating pizza mushrooms from the pizza place. He did work at the pizza place with 
um so he lion, just but... brought like a lot of portobello and like sashimi is that a mushroom that is a fish you mean <laughs> cremini um no he yes i did mean cremini sorry he was taking <laughs> um psychedelic mushrooms and I want to say it's like sabocycline. I might have made that up. I I can see the word spelled in my head, but anyways. And I I don't know the word. I will fully admit I don't know a lot about psychedelic mushrooms. So That's just so that stuff scares the shit out of me. Me too. I I know I'm, like, super naive, but it scares me. Well, I already, like, (laughs) I don't know, there are parts of my mind I have to stay away from. I don't want any of that shit opened back up. No, it freaks me out. So anything that's, like, psychedelic or, like, a hallucinogen, I'm like, I don't want to experience that. To me, that's not cool. To me, that's scary. To me, anything that would, like, fuck with and distort your, like, primary five senses, no. No, thank you. I'm good. Hard pass. I like to still be able to experience the world, you know? Maybe I have some drinks and the world's more, like, fuzzy and warm and, like, swooshy. But it's still, like, the world and not, I don't know, walls that are bleeding and and people coming out of... I don't fucking know. Covered in rainbows. You have, like, a really dark... Because I picture, like, rainbows and, like, a kaleidoscope. Like, I'm trapped in a kaleidoscope. Where it's, like, mirrors and you see everything. Which, that's scary. That's yeah, not fun. That's fair. like, that's like a also, fun house gone fucked up. I imagine it just being like, I don't know, having the spins, but you did it on purpose. And I don't want that. That's the worst part of drinking is when you get the spins. I know. Let's say that's the part where I'm just like, oh no, I had too much. So this just shows how naive I am, but whatever. Fair. I'm thinking um, life in a kaleidoscope. Yeah. Anyway, he's hanging out with friends. They're at a campfire party. And he's taken mushrooms. And this is when he told his group of six friends that he'd murdered Declan Lyons. What the fuck? Oh my god. But during this drug trip, he also claimed to have masterminded the 9-11 attacks. Okay, so he kind of sounds like he's full of shit. Kinda. That's, everyone's like, uh, okay. Like, are you legit or are you full of shit? And so to, to their fellow car workers and friends, Isaac and Declan seemed to be friends. They were fairly close at work, and they were friendly towards each other. So that was another clue that it was very strange that Isaac could have killed Declan. Because they were friends. Yeah. They were like, what the fuck? Also, he's taking shrooms. There just didn't seem to be any reason why he would have done that. Right. Also, to compound on this, Isaac was known to have suffered from mental illness. Nevertheless... After Isaac confessed to the murder to his group of friends, one of his friends told Isaac's mom, Kathy Turnbaugh, and she reportedly contacted the police. Yeah. Because she's like, fuck, my son just confessed to murder. Uh, I'm going to call the police. You know, and we've talked about this before, but that's got to be such a difficult decision as a parent to like, and this is literally the... Um, I'm going to say it. It's like the JonBenet Ramsey case where do you just shove it under the yeah. rug and pretend that the brother didn't do it? He totally did. And cover yeah, his did. tracks. Or do you do the right thing and, and call the police? It. Because, yeah. you know, yes, it fucking sucks, but you're just going to make it worse by not just being open and honest about it. Yeah. Well, and also it, you know, to quote an episode of Law and Order SVU we just watched. 
where the mom was protecting her 15-year-old daughter who murdered the husband's mistress. She was talking about how it's... A, a, you, I think you were asleep during this part. I guess it was so. Intense. Oh my god, um, I can't believe I fell asleep. She was talking about how, you know, everyone says the big parts of being a parent are, you know, being there on their wedding day, seeing them at school, and she's like, no... As a mom, the most important thing is to protect your kid. She's like, that is, if I can do anything in life, it's protect, protect my them. child. And I could obviously, you having that in you and your first instinct hearing this, like, well, fuck, we're going to cover it up. Or you could take it as the, I'm going to protect them by, we're going to go to the police and get this sorted out. Yeah, protection can be seen in both ways. So on August 23rd of 2002... 18-year-old Isaac Turnbaugh was arrested and charged with first-degree murder for the killing of Declan Lyons. So, Detective Lieutenant Tim Bombardier confirmed that Turnbaugh had long been a focus of this investigation that had been going on for almost five months now. Yeah. He said that, We've known about him for some time. And he cited extensive interviews with Turnbaugh as well as with family members, friends, and co-workers. So, what happened? He confessed a month after. Yeah. And they did then gather evidence. So right. this is this is taking place three, almost four months after he confessed was when he was arrested. Got it, got it. Because, of course, they couldn't... He had the confession, but they needed to find other evidence to arrest. Yeah. So, there was no traditional motive. The best investigators could come up with is that Turnbaugh was under the perception due to his mental illness, that Lyons posed a threat to him and his family. And that was the only thing that they could come up with. So yeah, there not was really no much motive. of anything. Yeah. And when he was first interviewed, along with all of the other employees at the pizza place 13 days after the shooting, Turnbull wasn't really considered a serious suspect at the time. Yeah. And police finally got the break they were looking for when... Turnbaugh's mother reached out to them in late May and shared that she had fears her son had been involved in the shooting. That was what finally kick-started like, okay, now let's really focus on this guy who was just random at first. Right, let's dig into this and see what we Mm -hmm. can find. So police subsequently interviewed those friends who he had confessed this to And all of them recalled the conversations during which Turnbot admitted to shooting or killing lions. Wait, so he had told his friends too? Yeah, well, his friends that were at the campfire. Oh, oh, yes, they were at the party. Gotcha, gotcha. So based on those interviews, police questioned Turnbot a second time. And during that interview, Turnbot allegedly admitted that he'd lied when he told police that he didn't have a gun on him. On the day that Lyons was shot. And he also allegedly admitted to hiding this gun in the woods behind his house on that day. And so, like, supposedly Mm -hmm. the gun is still there? Well, maybe. Court records further indicated that Turnbaugh allegedly told police that he'd concocted this story, his alibi he'd given at the time about going fishing um, at the time of the murder. He just told them that, yeah, he did make all that up. But... He specifically denied shooting lions, and the affidavit at the time indicated that bullet fragments recovered from the victim and those that were found at Turnbaugh's house didn't match, according to FBI analysis. So he's telling them, you know, okay, yeah, I did lie about having a gun that day, and I did hide that gun in the woods, 
And I lied about my alibi. I wasn't actually fishing. But I didn't shoot him. And then also the bullets that were in Declan and ones that were recovered from his house, not necessarily the gun, but ones that he had at his house didn't match. Right. But like you were just saying, he could have multiple guns. Like, yeah. Well, and also, just because the bullets aren't matching that were yeah. in his home. Well, and also there weren't a lot of bullet fragments left on lions. Like it it seemed to be such a high-powered weapon or something that they were very much fragmented and it was difficult to match them to anything. So they couldn't piece them together so they couldn't tell what exactly yeah. it was. Okay. So they couldn't confirm, yes, it's from this gun. But it's unclear right. if they would be able to confirm that with most guns kind of thing. True, especially if it's fragments. Yeah. After the arrest, a doctor diagnosed Turnbaugh as mentally ill. And so the case didn't go to court for another two years while they looked oh. at it to see if he was fit to stand trial. I forget how long some of these things take. Yeah. So Turnbaugh was deemed mentally fit, and the trial finally took place in 2004. Finally. There, Turnbaugh's lawyer told the jury that if they couldn't believe that he was involved in 9-11, like he also confessed, yeah, then they couldn't believe that he also killed Declan Lyons. Like, he confessed in the same sentence either. I mean, I hate what I'm about to say, but I totally get it. Yeah. I totally get it. I mean, he's on shrooms. Yes, he confessed. And they have evidence that he lied about his, like, alibi and stuff. But they still don't have a bullet that matches. There's no concrete thing that's putting him there. And in this confession they have... He's also confessing to be involved in 9-11 that happened when he was, like, what, 17? And also in Vermont? Yeah. So, mm, the case against Turnbaugh stretched on for nearly three weeks, and jurors heard from the assistant attorney general, Cindy McGuire, and defense attorney, Kurt Hughes, along with lengthy instructions from the judge as well. Yeah. So, McGuire laid out what the state believed to be Turnbaugh's movements on the day Declan was murdered, April 12, 2002. McGuire called the state's evidence against Turnbaugh overwhelming and called the investigation by police into Lyon's murder extensive. And she asked jurors to consider the credibility of some of these witnesses that yeah. were saying, oh, he couldn't have done it. Right. Because... They were Turnbaugh's friends and family who, she said, changed or massaged their testimony. Oh. She said, The evidence of guilt I will submit to you is not only beyond a reasonable doubt, it's overwhelming. We will ask you to return a verdict of guilty. So she's like, he did it. Yeah. He absolutely did it. Why aren't you listening to us? Yeah. Because, honestly, from what I've seen, the prosecution doesn't have a lot no. Neither does the defense. No. So it's it, uh, Well, it's uh, almost like, which side of not enough information are you going to believe? Which, honestly, mm -hmm. I'm like, it should have been a mistrial then. Yeah. So, But I have a feeling that's not what's about to happen. Yeah. In the defense's closing argument, Hughes called McGuire's tale all speculation and it doesn't add up. He said the actions of Isaac Turnbaugh on April 12th, 2002 are not consistent with guilt. If Isaac Turnbaugh had been planning to murder Declan Lyons 
For no apparent reason, he would not have gone to his father and asked permission to use this very gun, as the state said, that he was going to use to kill Declan Lyons. Like, hey dad, can I use this gun? I'm going to go kill a classmate. Yeah. Was he a classmate? I was calling uh, classmates. uh, Friend. Coworker. Coworker. That's what it is. Hey dad, I'm going to kill this coworker. Can I borrow your gun? Sure, son. Turnbull also would not- Not that that's what he asked. I'm just saying it. Yeah. Turnbaugh also would not have appeared in front of friends with this same gun on the evening before and the day of Lyon's death. Unless he just literally wasn't thinking about it or Mm -hmm. that was not his concern. Yeah. Um, He also insisted that the autopsy evidence refuted the state's contention that it was Turnbaugh's weapon that killed Lyon's because he's saying the bullets don't match like it. Y'all are saying, like, it's this gun that did it. And he's like, you can't prove that. Well, and so I feel like those are two different things. Not matching and unable to prove a match are two very different things. But I can see as a defense attorney that you're going to argue there's no match. Because technically you're right. There is no match, but it's that it can't be determined. Yeah. So after The words are always so tricky. And that is one thing that, well, I mean, to be completely transparent the notes we've been receiving from our apartment complex because remember we talked about this a couple episodes ago um and granted you no longer live here but i do the whole like they're saying we got misinformation and you and i dug a little bit deeper than most people would into what actually happened at the city council meeting and there's a meeting um coming up like they're delaying this thing like, like they're just dragging it out for weeks with our apartment they're they're sending us notices that are like oh no this this is not what's happening you're not going to be displaced and i'm like no not right now because yeah. literally it still has to go to a public hearing and then there are a few more hurdles to go over but, but no it's like i see said, it happening it's like they're basically being like no 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 we're not going to kick you out tomorrow we'll give you at least 30 days kind of thing yeah it's just it's very much this legal choose your wording carefully yeah and to be completely honest, this is almost why I feel like I'm either perfect for a jury or not, because I can see through the mm-hmm. bullshit, and I worry that I wouldn't be on a jury. Actually, I should be on a jury. I'd be that bitch just picking things apart that's like, no, 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 but what about this? What about that one raisin nut that they found in Shelly's car? A raisin nut? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, from the cereal. What is... Oh, okay. From the raisinettes or whatever. So... I don't know. We watched a commercial on that recently, I feel. Okay. Hey, that was my um, stream of consciousness. Let it happen. All right. Yeah, no, it it happened. It certainly did. Um, but no, I absolutely agree. I mean, like the the careful wording of it all is vital. Absolutely. That is that is what is going to make or break your defense. Mm-hmm. So, after over 5 hours of deliberation on April 6th, 2004, jurors delivered an innocent verdict in the first degree murder case against Isaac Turnbaugh. And this filled the courtroom with tears of both joy and sorrow. Yeah. Because his family is so happy. It's like, we told you he didn't do it. And I believe that Declan's family is also like, okay, if he didn't do it, that means the murder is still out there. Yeah. And the court released Turnbaugh to the Vermont State Hospital for further mental evaluation. Yeah. After this, the case of who murdered Declan Lyons went cold. Oh, God. Well, which I get. Mm -hmm. I get. They didn't have anything else on anyone else. Yeah. So that was 2004. On July 6th of 2011, 
Seven years after the court decision and nine years after Declan's murder, the police received a call from Isaac Turnbaugh. After officers were dispatched to Isaac's residence shortly after midnight that day, Turnbaugh came out to the front porch and assumed a prone position. So basically like getting down on his chest and like ready to be taken in. Yeah. And at that point, he made a number of spontaneous comments relating to the homicide, one of which was that he had shot Declan Lyons in the head with his thirty caliber rifle. <gasps> oh my god. So he's confessing again. To we're the police. To the police, and we're thinking he's probably not under the influence. Correct. So again, this is not the first time that Turnbaugh had claimed he killed Right. Uh, Lions. Right. This is his second yeah. confession. But that again, we know of. at the trial, he did deny it and say that it was because of the mushrooms he was on. But again, he was on mushrooms again. No, like at the at the trial, like he had confessed. But at the trial, he was saying, oh, I was on mushrooms when I said it. Right. This second time, he's not. Okay. That's what I was thought. Yeah. He's not on anything. Yeah. So after listening to him speak like this for a few minutes, police asked him if he'd go to the police station with them while they made a few phone calls to sort all of this out. And Turnbaugh agreed and was transported to the police station without any restraints. After a few minutes at the station, he approached Sergeant Leeton and said, Officer, and then very quickly punched him on his <gasps> lower left oh lip God. with his closed fist before the officer had a chance to, like, react or defend himself. Yeah. And this blow, like, bloodied the inside of his life. He got punched in the face. Yeah. Um, immediately afterward, Turnbot ran back into the conference room he was sitting in and placed himself in the prone position on the floor. So he just came into the conference room, punched this police officer, ran back and laid down. Oh, my God. Yeah. So he was obviously secured with handcuffs now. Yeah, of course. Uh, to a bench and was eventually arraigned on the same day on charges of assaulting a police officer. Yeah. And he was ordered to have inpatient psychiatric examination at the Vermont State Hospital. And he was held there on $1,000 bail. Yeah. So while at the hospital, he continued to confirm his confession that he was the person who had murdered Declan Lyons. Oh my god, so he's just saying it again and again. Yeah. Because it's probably true. So, attorneys on both sides were in disagreement about the confession, obviously. His defense attorney was quoted as saying, He's mentally ill. He made similar so-called confessions before the trial, so it's nothing new. It's part of his illness, and it sounds like he's having a relapse of some sort. Which, I could, I get it. Yeah. I really do. Like, I know I said it sounds like he totally did it, but, like, it could absolutely... I'm struggling because I can literally see this, the both sides, both sides of this uh, case. So, one thing about his confession is this time he gave more evidence. Oh, my God. He expanded his story and revealed things that weren't known to the public at the time. So, Vermont Attorney General William Sorrell believed the confession yeah the second one he said he gave some details this time that are consistent with the evidence in the case clearly the victim had a head wound but the police were never able to find any bullet or bullet fragments enough to do any uh real ballistics right so 
we didn't have the evidence of any particular caliber or any particular gun. We believed it was a high-power rifle, and we knew that Isaac Turnbaugh owned a 30 caliber rifle, so this time he did say that he shot him in the head with his 30. Oh my god. So there was speculation and rumors that authorities could go after Turnbaugh on other potential charges such as perjury. Yeah. Because lying on the stand. But Sorrell said that the defendant didn't testify on his own behalf, so perjury was out of the question. Because he never lied on stand. He didn't. He didn't go up there. And besides that, the statute of limitations on perjury was up at this time. Yeah, because it had been how many years since his case? It had been seven years since the trial. Yeah. In this case, while Isaac did confess to the murder, and the evidence does point to the fact that he was likely the killer, there is no way that he can be found guilty for murder because Because he was already found innocent. (gasps) Double jeopardy. Oh my God. So even though he confessed and they had more evidence, what did they have more evidence? Well, here, I'll explain it a little bit. Okay, okay, sorry. So for those of y'all that don't know, double jeopardy is the legal doctrine that says a defendant can only be charged once for a single crime. And according to Sorrell, who again is the Attorney General of Vermont, new non-murder charges relating to this incident can no longer be filed because of the statute of limitations, and police would also- There's a statute of limitations on murder? Well, non-murder charges. So things like perjury and stuff. Oh. Murder, he's been found innocent of. of So they can't charge him for murder again. Oh my god. And police would be unable to use any of the evidence that they used in the murder trial. So everything. Everything legit that they have, they cannot use. They use his confessions and stuff. They can't use that again. So they can't use his second confession? They could, but he can't be tried again for this murder. For the murder. They would have to find something else to try him for. Oh my god, this is crazy. Sorrel said that you only get one bite of the apple. It's double jeopardy. You can go out on the courthouse steps and confess, and this state can't do anything. You know, don't you think there's something wrong with that? Yes and no? Yes and no. In cases like this, yes. In other cases, it's it's like a Pandora's box. Because if you were allowed to, then if the police had a vendetta against someone, okay, he's found innocent, fucking charge him again. Let's take him back to court. Let's keep doing this. Yeah. And where does it yeah. end? Yeah, no, that's that's true. But, but yeah. this just seems so unfair because he's saying he did it. Mm-hmm. Yet, at the same time, I get it. There's yeah. no real evidence that he did. He was found not guilty. So in the same way that OJ, for example. But he liter- fucking did it. We all did. know that. He could literally admit tomorrow and confess to it. And because he's already been found innocent in those... You can't retry him for those murders. I've never thought of that. And this just brought new, like, thoughts in my head about how when he was convicted of, like, the um, kidnapping and whatever Mm -hmm. in Las Vegas. I don't know if it was kidnapping. It was something. Yeah, it was was kidnapping and, like, armed robbery. Armed robbery. That he got the harshest punishment because they knew. They were like, we fucking got OJ. We're putting him in jail. We're giving him the severest punishment because you know he actually got away with something else. Which is not necessarily right. That's not (laughs) right. By any means. Yeah. It's not. But I get it. I get it. And I am like cheering it on, Mm -hmm. which makes me a total hypocrite. I 
totally understand that. But yeah, I am so does. convinced in his guilt mm-hmm. for the murder of Nicole and Ron that when he got that severe punishment, I was like, that's fucking right, bitch. That's what you get. And now that he's out, I literally am just waiting for him to fuck up and get arrested Mm -hmm. again. Because he will. He's totally going to fuck up. He, you know, he had so many years of trying to do it right and not not get caught. And he gets caught for that because of the fact that he owes the Goldman family so much money. Yeah. Like, because of the civil trial. And so, it just, anyway. Um, Different different example of how to get away with murder. True. But yeah, that was the murder of Declan Lyons and how Isaac Turnbaugh got away with murder. I hate that Declan's family has no resolution, Mm-mm. no peace, no nothing. No, and there's a confessed murderer walking around. Granted, in this case, I still think there is the possibility that... Maybe he didn't do it? Maybe he didn't do it, or he did it because he... You know, his mental illness had a lot to do with it, and yeah, he should be in a mental health facility getting treatment. Right. But, yeah. That's a crazy one. Like I said, that was one that I also found but decided against doing, and um, I'm glad you picked it because I was curious, and, and that's crazy. And it, it brings in so many other things like mental illness and mm-hmm. drugs and just all the different things that could lead to a confession that it's hard to tell. Is it a confession or a false confession? Exactly. And um, so I by no means fault that jury or, or anything. Mm-hmm. It's just... I just feel really, really bad for Declan's family that they never got any resolution. Me too. Well, let's jump into your case now. Okay. Yes. So mine is the murder of Bonnie Garland. Okay. The sources I used, the New York Times, um, it was an article from May 7th, 1978 that they had digitized. So yours is an older one. Yes, it is an older one from the 70s. Uh, Wikipedia, the Washington Post. So I just used those three. Okay. So a little bit of background. First, we're going to talk about a man named Richard James Heron. So Richard was the son of a Mexican mother and an Irish father, and their dad abandoned him when he was only three years old. Oh, dick. Yeah. So his mom ended up remarrying, and when Richard was 17 years old, he graduated first in his class of 415 at Abraham Lincoln High School in Los Angeles. So he's from California. He played basketball and baseball. He was the leader in student government, and he was the class valedictorian. So So he is just Mr. Perfect. He's Mr. Perfect, insanely successful. No one ever saw him angry. He'd never been in any fights. And during the summer and on the weekends, he helped out in his stepfather's swap shop. Oh. And he also went with his mom to 7 a.m. mass every single Sunday. He just, he's your very well-rounded, very intelligent person who, you know, his IQ was 150. And out of the 8,681 high school seniors who applied for the Yale class of uh, 1975, Richard was one of the only, uh, like, a thousand men accepted. Wow. So and he got accepted. How many applied? 8,681. Damn. And that's high school seniors. That's men and women. Yeah. And of a thousand of those, they were men, or about a thousand, obviously yeah. not a round number like that. He was one of wow. them. Wow. Good for him. But something happened to Richard when he got to Yale. He stopped doing well academically. In his four years there, he only earned a single A. Oh. 
he didn't seem troubled by his ac- academic slide. He was saying, like, he's a geology major, and there's no one less competitive at Yale than a geo major, and he's a C student. So, like, he's just like, whatever, I'm studying geology, like, that's not competitive, I don't give a shit, yeah, I'm not doing no. so well, whatever. Honestly, I kind of get it, because, at least for me, I always made good grades in high school. And it was because I didn't have to, like, and I didn't have to study or anything like that. And I was like, well, whatever. And when you went to college, so when I everything went to college, changed. Yeah, because I was like, I didn't study. Oh, fuck. I That's when you, behind. like, learn, you realize you have no idea how to properly study. And you're like, wait, yeah. fuck. It's like, honestly, one of the shitty things about being, like, a smart teenager because you enter college and you're like, oh, fuck, no, that is not going to get me anywhere here. No, it's not. And, like... I suffered a little bit of that. Thankfully, I was able to pick it back up and, like... You picked it up a little quicker than I did, but I did. it's fine. <laughs> I did. But, so, Richard was not coasting through Yale, and it, he just had other interests, and that was why. For three years, those interests revolved around intramural sports, Catholicism, the Chicano group on campus, his guitar, midnight horror movies, and long brunches with his friends. Which, oh, totally fair. That's, that get it. great. <laughs> totally get it. Oh. Falling in line with the brunches with friends. Honestly. And midnight horror movies. Absolutely. I don't want to watch midnight horror movies. I'll watch Midnight Law and Order and go to long brunches. Absolutely. You betcha. Um, in the fall of his senior year, in November of 1974, he added another interest, and her name was Bonnie Jean Garland. She sounds nice. So, Bonnie had stunning red hair, she sang beautifully, and she spoke Spanish. She'd been at Yale less than two months when they met, and she was 17 years old. Oh, damn. And she'd never had a serious boyfriend. So, obviously, she's... (laughs) So, obviously, she's highly intelligent. She gets into Yale, and she's 17. Mm -hmm. Within a week after meeting Richard, she did. She had her first serious boyfriend. Bonnie loved Richard because he was tall and handsome, musical, and athletic. She loved him because he was fun to be with, and in this, like, super competitive, pre-professional jungle that Yale was during Mm -hmm. this time to a lot of people, he knew there was more to life than grade grubbing. Like, it wasn't all about what grades you get. Like, there's more. And she loved him because of that. She loved him because he loved her, and he let her know it. Like, he shared things with her. He gave uh, her things. I don't he was... like where I think this is going because I'm like, this is so sweet. Yeah, I know. Don't don't buy into it too much. Ugh. Uh, she also loved him because he was unlike the boys she'd known during her sheltered girlhood. So she was an American growing up in Brazil. She had a very sheltered education at the exclusive Madaria School in Virginia and her sheltered home life in Scarsdale, New York. Bonnie's parents had built, like, one hell of a life. Her father, Paul Garland, went to Yale and graduated summa cum laude, and then he went to law school at Harvard. Shit, okay. After Harvard Law School, his interest in South American culture led him to Brazil, where he became a lawyer and founded a firm that eventually employed 50 attorneys. Shit. Her mom, Joan Garland, uh, in addition to raising four children, she had earned a master's degree in human genetics from Sarah Lawrence. And Uh, now that her oldest daughter was starting college, she was about to begin work for a second master's in social work at Columbia. Damn. Okay. Literally, this family is like super well-educated. They're going to all the Ivy Leagues. They sound like the waspiest of wasps. It's a super waspy family. And so 
a lot was expected of Bunny because of the way she was brought up. Yeah. So Bunny's parents were not the biggest fans of Richard. They didn't like him. Really? He seems like, I mean, he's in Yale, athletic, like he was valedictorian of his high school and... And then it kind of went downhill from there. I mean, I guess. So he was at Yale, yes. But it seemed to the Garlands that he went to graduate school as a way of avoiding the real world as long as possible. Okay. Paul and Joan considered Richard's self-presentation. He was, like, wearing t-shirts, baggy pants, sneakers without socks. And they they praised his academic record. They, like, looked it over and they're like, he's not doing so well. Also, what? Like, if you date our daughter, you have to send us your report card. I mean, I don't know how they found his academic record, but they did. Probably people you know. So they hoped that Bonnie's next boyfriend would be more suitable. Because Bonnie, who got A's, two B's, and a C her first first term at Yale, and then two D's, an F, and a C after meeting Richard... They were hoping she'd come to her senses when she when he graduated because he was older. Yeah. So they're hoping like he's gonna graduate, get out of her life, and that's fair. She's gonna be able to get back on track. Yeah. So Richard left New Haven in August 1975, but he did not leave Bunny. A month later, when he was at TCU in Fort Worth, where he had moved, he wrote her a letter and he said, "Bonnie, I'm living every second for you." So he is still Ugh. super dedicated to this relationship. Yes, it may be long distance. Um, he even built a shrine to Bonnie because of nope. how much he missed her. Nope, nope, nope. Um, <laughs> no, nope. This is where it takes a turn. Don't build shrines to people unless uh, they're dead. No, it's... If they're dead, feel free. It's a memorial. It's not a shrine if they're dead. <laughs> okay. <fine. laughs> and that makes all the difference. Shrine, creepy. Memorial, respectful are you picturing the like hey arnold like yes. gum i was like literally <laughs> please say helga Podaski because that's what i'm picturing fair yes where okay. if you miss that in your childhood i'm sorry look it up it's the best thing ever it's also honestly, creepy as creepy far as, shit. as children's shows go it's one i really liked it because um, it, it really got real down to issues. real shit yeah because it was like you know it had episodes where his friend is very low income and they're on like government supported housing and there's a whole episode about the mom really trying to get out there and apply for a job and she doesn't get the job and it yeah. like devastates me. also his parents are gone it's that show is fucking good his parents are gone is that what you're saying yeah to arnold's say? yeah, yeah yeah arnold's parents are gone it's as far as like kids shows go it's fucking deep yeah it is it deals with like I think it goes into, like, racism. Actually, a lot of Nickelodeon. No, it, it goes into a lot of racism. Yeah, Nickelodeon does a good job. Yeah. And no. I, not that everything needs to be an educational moment, but for kids, if it, it can be, it if should it be. If it can be, it should be. And you could still have, like, a good entertaining show, like Hey Arnold. Yeah. That... All of this coming from two people who don't have children, but literally, I, mean, I support true. the education of our youth and when they're young. Yes. And, like, our brains, the younger you are, the more you can absorb. Mm. It's like a sponge. It literally is. Like... Oh, my God. That's what SpongeBob teaches. <laughs> no, it's not. But, like, literally, your brain is yeah. like a sponge. And, like, you know how children who are bilingual, if they start learning a second language mm-hmm. when they're super young... They're more likely to catch on. You know what? Or people who have bilingual parents who talk like, especially, you know, here in Texas, Mm -hmm. I have a lot of Latino families and Mexican families or friends that have families Mm -hmm. and they speak both because their parents spoke both at home growing up. That's just what they learned. And I'm like, that's 
awesome. I will say one caveat I do want to say, and then we'll go back, is it pisses me off how when, like, you'll see reports of, like, Princess Charlotte is six years old and already knows two languages, and everyone's like, yay! But when it's, like, a non-white child, it's like, oh, okay. And I'm like, bitch, she's been doing that since she was three. Yeah. Because... I know. Oh, my God. So, I'm going to jump back into my case. Yes. The shrine I was mentioning. Yes. So, to the left of Richard's bed, there was a night table with pictures of Bonnie, stuffed animals, presents, candies, books, everything that she had sent him. a lot on a nightstand. It's everything she had sent him. So, like, this nightstand is literally dedicated to Bonnie. Yeah, again, that has to be a big-ass nightstand. Totally. So even just a month into their long-distance relationship, Bonnie was feeling like Richard was just becoming a voice on the phone. And she was afraid to end things with him because of his really dark past. Um, Just the way he grew up with his family, his father leaving him. And, you know, he'd written in letters that he'd hit anyone who asked her out. Like, just being like... Very defensive and protective. Um, However, Bonnie did begin seeing a fellow singer. She was doing this while Richard was in Fort Worth. And eventually, you know, the guilt got to her and she broke it off. Yeah. And Richard never knew. Okay. So in the summer of 1976, Bonnie was 19 years old and she worked as a babysitter in Fort Worth so she could be with Richard. Oh, and so she, like, left Yale? She Well, it was summer. She oh, was, okay, okay, okay. She, school wasn't happening, so she was there in Fort Worth with him. She was babysitting, so she'd make some money. And then she went with him to his Los Angeles home to meet his family. Yeah. When she came back to Worcester with Richard um, in tow, she seemed kind of depressed. So, like, he's with her. He goes back. It's like she visited him and his family. You know, he's going back with her and whatever. Yeah. She seemed really depressed um, that full year. And her mom asked her, if Richard is so great, why aren't you happy? I mean, of course, Bonnie doesn't have an answer. She's this young girl. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's a shitty thing to ask, but I get it. I get it. Um. So, Richard really, really wants to marry Bonnie. He's still in Fort Worth at TCU, and she's at Yale. And to quicken things, he encouraged her to accelerate and graduate in three years instead of four. Oh. So Bonnie accelerated. In addition to private voice lessons, singing in the Glee Club, Madrigal, Battelle Chapel Choir, and a group called The Proof of the Pudding, she signed up for five and a half courses. Oh, shit. So she is doing... Everything. How? Everything. How? Actually, just how? I don't know. And not very well. Yeah. So Richard comes back to Yale in the fall of 76 to celebrate their two-year anniversary. And he's being, like, very protective of her. And he's talking to some of her friends. And he's starting to get a little suspicious. (laughs) And he's starting to think that maybe something had happened while he was away. And, of course, her friends are like, no, no, nothing happened. Like, you're just being, you're just worrying. Everything's yeah. fine. But, like, but we know Bonnie did have an affair. He never yeah. finds out about that at this time. Mm-hmm. But he's suspicious. In the middle of her third year at Yale, Bonnie was sleeping through her classes, eating whole cheesecakes. 
She flunked a couple courses in music theory, which is what she knows and what she's studying. And she um, gained weight until she was a size 16, which I just want to take a side note to point out the fact that that pissed me off that that was written in an article. Yeah. I wanted to say it so I could have this conversation. Because. um, Hi, welcome to average woman world. Fuck you. Yeah. And, And again, this was an article from the 70s. And so... So it's sexist. It's super sexist. And I just... I didn't appreciate it. No, that's super fucked up. that. Because also, what if that doesn't have anything to do with it? That has nothing to do with... Some people gain weight when they're depressed. Some people lose weight when they're depressed. Some people gain weight when they're having the fucking time of their life. And they're eating whole cheesecakes because they're happy. Yeah. Not because they're depressed. I mean, she's not... But that it doesn't have anything to do with this. No, exactly. And that was the point I wanted to make is yeah. that that is not something that should signify anything. someone's like anything. You're right. Yeah. Any, you're right. So around March of 1977, Bonnie's life started to change. She started seeing a psychiatrist. She started dating a popular Yale senior. Um, he was a member of the Whiffenpuffs. Which is apparently a thing, and I don't really know what it is. It I sounds like one Yale. of those Yale societies, like, yeah, yep. okay. Yep, and with her parents' approval, she decided to withdraw from Yale. You know what, honestly, first off, good for her for taking the steps to see a professional and, like, take the steps to, what seems like, try to get her life in order. She sees yeah. right now that Yale is not good for her right now. It's and not so what she's she like, needs. I need to step away for a bit. And her parents are like, because they're obviously, they went to these Ivy League schools. Yeah. Look at their careers. They're these overachieving type A people. Yeah. And the fact that they're like, yes, this is what you need right now. Like, good. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So there was one last change that she needed to make in her life that she'd been avoiding. And in late June, she makes this decision. She wrote to Richard to say she was no longer living for the time when they would be married and broke it off with him. Good. So yes, Bonnie did see start seeing another person before doing this. She delayed for about three months before making the decision. Yeah. But she finally writes in the letter and says, hey, this isn't going to work. Yeah. I need something else. So Richard got this letter when he was packing to move to D.C. He'd been applying to Ph.D. programs and had been accepted to George Washington University. So he was coming back over to the east side of the country, you know, to be closer to her. And to continue his education to get his PhD. He could not imagine life without Bonnie, and so he abruptly flew to New York to reclaim her. Uh, Excuse me? Reclaim her? Oh, yeah, no, the word choice in that, at least it was in quotes, but, like, that's fucked up that he thinks that she's property to be claimed? Yeah, uh, no. Fuck you. Fuck this guy. So, Bonnie allowed him to stay with her parents... Um, like with her and her parents at her parents' home for a few days. And she wanted to talk it over. She told her family she wanted to let him down gently. Like this was a big thing. So the Garlands were so grateful that Bonnie's like two and a half year mistake as they were seeing it was ending. Yeah. So they agreed. They were like, sure, Richards can stay here. So you guys can fucking break up. Yeah. So um, Joan, her mom, wanted one thing clearly understood. If Richard was going to stay there, He had to leave Scarsdale on Thursday, July 7th. Bonnie was about to start a summer program at Columbia the following Monday, and her mom wanted her to be very well rested, get over this, be ready for school. Yeah. So on Wednesday, June 6th, 
Bonnie and Richard drove to New York so she could register for school at Columbia. So they're just together. It's something she had to do. Yeah. Bonnie told Richard she wanted to break off their relationship. He was to leave the next day. Um, and, you know, while he was at the home, he was staying in the guest bedroom that was at the opposite end of the house from her. Yeah. When they got back, her mom took Bonnie aside and asked if Richard had made a reservation the following morning for a plane back to Texas. Bonnie said no, but that she'd talk to him about it. Yeah. So Bonnie talked to him about it. And when she's saying goodnight to him, she's also thinking this is goodbye. Yeah. Instead, around two in the morning, while the family was sleeping, Richard went into the basement and he found one of Paul's claw hammers. He wrapped it in a yellow towel. Oh, God. And he left it outside Bonnie's bedroom. What? He went into her room to make sure she was asleep. And then he returned to the hall to get the hammer and the towel. He placed it under her bed, you know, again, looking at her, making sure she's sleeping. He then picks it up and he hit her with the claw end of the hammer at least three times. What the fuck? Smashing her larynx and skull into pieces. The blows were so violent, brain tissue was left sticking to the ceiling of Bonnie's room. What the fuck? Yeah. He fucking lost it. Jesus fucking girl. Because she broke up with him. She was sleeping. And she's finally happy. Yeah. And he fucking destroys her. So he steals one of the Garland's cars. And according to police, he started just driving around aimlessly. He broke the rearview mirror so he could use the sharp glass to slit his wrists. But he changed his mind. When the car was almost out of gas, he stopped in front of St. Mary's Church in, I'm totally going to butcher this name, apologies, Coxsackie, New York which is about 100 miles north of Scarsdale. Mm -hmm. It took him two hours sitting in his car to gather his courage to talk to the priest. And eventually he goes in and confesses to killing his girlfriend. So it's not until seven the next morning when her dad was like already on his way to work in New York that the Coxsackie... Sorry, it's really the word I can't say it. It's a co- when the Coxsackie police um, reached their Scarsdale counterparts. Mm-hmm. So they finally got a hold of those police. A Scarsdale detective dispatched three officers to the house. And around the same time when the police got there, Joan was hurrying up the stairs ahead of them. And that's when she found Bonnie. Oh. They had no idea until this point that anything had happened. Oh my god. Bonnie was gasping for air unconscious she was bloody. alive she was alive bonnie was alive oh my god so she'd been laying there alive for hours for since 2 a.m oh and it's like god. after seven at this point so when richard found out that bonnie was still alive he was furious he said no it can't be she has to be dead i don't believe it and he's like smashing his foot on the floor he's so pissed off And then he jerked his head up and his eyes were like super wide with shock. And he screams, she has to be dead. The hammer stuck in her head and I had to pull it out. So he's literally like confessing to what he did because he's in such shock that she's still alive. What the fuck? So surgeons worked for three hours and at 1038 PM with her mom holding her hand, Bonnie died. She was only 20 years old. So the murder of Bonnie Garland was... It was not a predictable crime. No one saw this happening. It was not only the first non-police homicide in Scarsdale history, it was the first killing that involved members of the Yale community as a victim and perpetrator. God. 
Richard was indicted for second-degree murder and two lesser charges. He entered a plea of not guilty by virtue of temporary insanity. Um, wait, I'm sorry. I just remembered what the topic was, and I am pissed. Oh, yeah, get pissed. Because it's about to get real fucking messy. The people who had known Richard and liked him at Yale, their reaction was like, no, this is impossible. They could not hate the man they knew as the most Pacific guy you ever met, which I guess it means he's from fucking California. I have no okay. idea what that fucking means. Oh, like passive, like a pacifist, like a nonviolent. Oh, it's not talking about the ocean? Probably not. I was literally so confused. I was like, yeah, he's from California, but whatever. But yes. That so makes more sense. He's super passive. You're right. That makes more sense. But like Richard told police what he had done. Many people said this was beyond their comprehension. They felt that there was no reason for a second life to be destroyed as well. What? Oh, no, it gets worse. (laughs) I actually get to use that phrase now. It gets worse. They believe that Richard could make a contribution to society still. And so their response to the killing was to throw their energies into Richard's salvation. Are you fucking kidding me? No. I mean, yeah, like his salvation, everything. Yes. I mean, like rehabilitation is important and stuff. Are you fucking kidding me? Do they not give any shits about Bonnie? It doesn't seem like it. So A.T. Wall, who was Richard's former roommate at Yale, sent a mailing to all of Richard's friends uh, soliciting letters that could be used in a bail campaign. So some of those who responded were people who had known Richard in Los Angeles, but most of them were Yale graduates and faculty. One Yale classmate who was 23 years old, he was the special assistant to President Carter. They got a letter from him. A congressional aide wrote the judge, as did Yale Dean Martin Griffin. Letters like these and the willingness of 19 members of the Christian Brothers community of Albany to provide shelter and supervision during the like pre-trial period they were going to house him. All of this enabled Richard's attorney, Jack Lippman, to compile a bail application that acting justice John Walsh described as the best I've ever seen. And he set bail for $50,000. Are you fucking kidding me? For murdering her and confessing. There, like, there's no question in this from anyone that, he, that did he did it. They're just like, oh, well, he did, but God, he's such a good guy. Exactly. So his friends and family raised $11,000. And then a pediatric cardiologist at Yale who worshipped at St. Thomas More, which I believe uh, Richard played guitar there. Mm-hmm. Um, she'd never met Richard She was taken to the Westchester jail to visit him, and she said he seemed so close to suicide that she felt that she could avert the situation, and that tragedy compounded makes no sense. So she helped out, and on August 11th, Richard left Westchester jail. So obviously, the Garland family was fucking He was only in jail for like a month. Oh yeah, that was it. And then he goes like to this Christian Brothers um, Academy in Albany. And they're like... They're, like, housing him. God. So, obviously, the Garlands are fucking furious. Yeah. And because, you know, everyone else is supporting Richard and forgetting about Bonnie. Yeah. Yale's dean, Horace Saft, wrote, I can easily understand the distress these letters have caused Mr. Garland, but I very much regret he seems to have interpreted them as some kind of institutional involvement by Yale in the defense of Richard Heron. 
Yale has no place, and we have not taken one. That it seems just completely untrue. Because of how much of the Yale faculty, including the dean, are springing to... Well, and it was like, his... a different dean did that, and I guess this guy came in and is like, no, 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 no. Wow. I mean, I guess, like, they switched yeah. deans. But, like, yeah, what the fuck? It obviously seems like Yale took a stance in this. Yeah. That's what it sounds like, because it was two Yale students. So, Paul and Joan were obviously more than just distressed. They were dumbfounded. And what was going on? Yeah, their daughter's murdered, and literally, immediately, everyone is jumping to Richard's side. Yeah. So, they just didn't understand how Richard could be freed after only 35 days after the murder, and with no psychiatric examination. And, like, regardless of the legality of these events, this seemed just, like, really reckless to them. Yeah. They were like, no, this is not right. They did not view Richard as a brother who has fallen to them. And they saw him as a vicious and unpredictable person. And they were worried that he might return to Scarsdale and kill again. Yeah. Because of how, like, randomly and instantly violent he was in their home. Yeah. And thanks to Richard, their 13-year-old daughter was afraid to be alone in the house. And the entire... older sister was just murdered in that house by... Yeah. The entire family started therapy, and Paul, who averaged about 100,000 miles of business travel in a year, he could not leave his family alone for a night. He had yeah. to be home with them. While Richard was waiting trial, he was taking classes at State University of New York under the ali- under an alias while he's at the care of the Christian Brothers in Albany. God. So until he went on trial on May 15th, 1978... He lived as a free man. Yeah. God. This trial was very much a classic example of brilliant defense, a lackluster prosecution. So in the trial, they described the motive. Bonnie had been dating other men on the side. She finally gets the courage to tell Richard she wanted out of their relationship. And then it also portrayed Richard as having been left emotionally crippled by a lonely, frightened childhood. And as profoundly distraught at the prospect of losing the woman whose social status and sexual love were bound to his self-esteem. What? So it's literally just like, he had been left as a child, he finally met someone, she made him into who he was supposed to be, and she was leaving him. Are you fucking- so it's her fault she got murdered. It's her fault. Is what fault. they're saying. Oh my god. Can you be done? I am almost. I am almost. Oh my god. So he pleaded not guilty and his attorney filed the official notice of defense, mental disease, or defect. So Judge Richard J. Darcino presided over the highly publicized trial at the Westchester County Courthouse in White Plains. Almost exactly a month after the trial started, with Bonnie's character tainted, hate this, they defiled her, they made it seem like she was just sleeping around, and this was all her fault. I don't give a fuck if she was sleeping around. If she was literally having sex with every single person she met every single day. It doesn't mean she murdered should murdered her with a hammer mm-hmm. in her bed. I know. While she was just being... This giving and open person to let him stay there while she fucking dumps his ass. So Richard was found not guilty of murder in the first degree, despite his admission to the police that he had planned the killing 
but he was guilty of manslaughter. Richard was convicted of first-degree manslaughter and sentenced to the maximum penalty under the law, which was 25 years. He served 17 years in state prison at the Windy Correctional Facility in Alden, New York, and he was released in on January 12th, 1995. 17 years. 17 years. For this brutal fucking murder. So critics are saying that this sentence was a result of the Yale community, like, mm-hmm. coming together and, like, defending him. And, in particular, the Catholic chaplaincy uniting to support him and portraying him as this victim of his upbringing in a minority neighborhood Fuck his Los upbringing. Angeles. Oh, I know. Lots of people have shitty upbringings and don't murder people. Oh, I know. Um, and unfortunately, this case foreshadowed others in which the circumstances of the killing were muddled by the personalities of the victim and accused. So this is like the where and I, I just think of OJ, where it's like yeah. it, it turned to racism. It was talking about like how OJ was, you know, people were being racist against him. And this is like a thing that's happening in L.A. And it had nothing to do with the actual case. It has to do with the social status of the victim and the one that's being prosecuted. And that's how the decision is made and not with what actually happened. Unfortunately, I feel like Bonnie's family never, never got justice for this. Um, The fact that he got out after 17 years, it's just, no. 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 I hate it. No, that's, so he's just doing, living life today. I did not look up what he's doing because I didn't want to know. Fair. So um, that's the case of the murder of Bonnie Garland. Um, postmortem? You go. Well, these were fucked up. Yeah. This whole topic actually is super fucked up because it's people that got away with it. Yeah. Which I will say, to be totally honest, it sounds like mine actually literally got away with it. Yours, I'm still a little bit questionable as if he did or not. Yeah. I, I believe he did. I strongly believe that he did kill him. Yes. Whether it was murder or... Something that would be, I mean, like, like he was murdered, but whether it's something that, like, intentional murder, or if it just happened that he killed him. Well, well, like, I think it was intentional, but I whether or not his how much of a part his mental illness played into it is right. unknown. It is, it is, and I guess that is unknown for most cases, but it is. Yeah, I mean. I mean, to be honest, mine was super fucked up, and I yeah. think it was the crazier case. Uh, yeah. Um. I mean, because yours, like, yes, he at least did go to prison, but for 17 years. Yeah. For murdering her, and the entire time had all this support. Yeah. And Bonnie is just being, her reputation, everything's being drugged through the mud. Because what? She dated someone when she was in this long-distance relationship and broke up with this guy? Like, hello, welcome to college. Regardless of, actually, she's literally doing nothing. She's living her life. He straight up cold-blooded murdered her, confessed to the police that he had planned it, and everyone's like, oh my god, but he could, he's so nice, he could contribute. She's already dead, so we can't do anything about that, but why punish him and destroy another life? That kills me. And the fact that it went from, like, first-degree murder, because he confessed and planned it, and said that he did, to manslaughter. manslaughter. So, yeah, I will definitely, definitely pick mine again next week. (laughs) Okay, I will pick the topic next Um, week. Because, yeah, and I just, I knew this topic would 
suck. Yeah. Because of what the topic is. Yeah. But it's super sucked. Yeah. It just, I basically. <laughs> so, I mean, with that fun sentiment, um, uh, if you enjoyed this episode um, and if you like our podcast, want to hear more, make sure to rate and review us on yes, Apple please. Podcasts and um, let us know what you think. Yes. Um, and also don't forget to like us and follow us on social. We're on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and um, we're also, like we said earlier, part of Patreon. So just check us out. Give us a follow. Yes. I think Instagram is the one we have all of the fun photos. Facebook as well. I Twitter. mean, I love Instagram the most. Oh, I love it. Instagram it's so visual. Fun. But also on Twitter, I'm a visual we have... Bitch. Twitter, we have, like, the fun, like, crazy conversations, so, and True. random shit thoughts that that's what Twitter's about. So, True. anyway, follow us. Yeah. So, anyway, thank you all so much for tuning in. Uh, this is Blood and Wine signing off. XOXO. Bye, you guys. Bye. Bye.